welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. In 2018, the American Society of Clinical Oncology released a clinical practice guideline update that described potential methods of fertility preservation in cancer patients. The gold standard of therapy for post-pubertal children and adults are sperm, oocyte, and embryo cryopreservation. Other options include tissue cryopreservation, which is currently only done in clinical trials, and hormonal therapy. The role of gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists in fertility preservation in women is highly debated and currently being explored. Here to review current literature that examines the role of gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists in ovarian suppression is Dr. Sheena Braga, PharmD. So in 2019, there was an estimated 16 million cancer survivors in the United States alone. And this is owing to cancer, cancer research and development. And thanks to many of our scientists and healthcare providers, we will see an estimated increase in this number to up to 23 million in the year 2030. This is exciting news for us and for our patients. And this is also why guidelines like the ASCO guidelines or the Americans, American Society of Clinical Oncology and the NCCN guidelines recommend the use recommend that we discuss fertility preservation in our patients even prior to getting their first dose of chemotherapy. Therefore, even before prior, they, they get their first dose of chemotherapy. So one of the things that we have to watch out for with chemotherapy use is its long-term side effects. And one of those long-term consequences is oncologic infertility. Sadly, though, Fertility preservation is still highly underutilized in these patients, which is why today I encourage you to learn with me how we can preserve our patient's future. So my goals for this presentation, at the end, I want us to be able to explain how chemotherapeutic agents can affect the gonadal function of our patients, and also recognize what different modalities we have for fertility preservation in both adults and in children. And then lastly, we will go over and review current literature of a hot topic that is widely debated for female uh, fertility preservation. So as a brief overview, chemotherapeutic agents are divided into non-cell cycle specific and cell cycle specific agents. And for this presentation, we will be focusing our time on non-cell cycle specific agents because they are implicated in a higher risk for gonadotoxicity. And some examples are as follows, but especially cyclophosphamide. As we know, chemotherapy target rapidly dividing cells. And examples of those include, of course, the cancer cells that we are trying to target. However, there are also some unintentional targets to chemotherapy. And unfortunately, that includes bone marrow cells, the cells in your GI tract, hair follicles, and gonadal cells. Because, because chemotherapy can also target gonadal cells, one of the risk factors that I've mentioned or one of the side effects that I've mentioned is oncologic for infertility. So some of the risk factors that we need to consider are as follows. First is the age at diagnosis and treatment of the patients. 
For example, female patients over the age of 35 years old, they have a higher risk for premature menopause because they already have a lower ovarian reserve. Another thing to consider is radiation sites and dosing. Will the patient get any radiation to the abdomen or directly to the testicles or to the ovaries or even around the gonads? Of course, we also have to consider cranial radiation because cranial radiation can also affect and damage the hypothalamic pituitary gland axis. Dosing, of course, if, if you have a higher dose of radiation, you also have a higher chance of infertility. And chemotherapeutic factors that we need to consider again, as I mentioned, are those non-cell cycle specific agents and their cumulative doses. So now we know the risk factors to assess in our patients. So let's take a look at how chemotherapy can actually affect and directly uh, cause toxic effects to the gonads. First with the male gonadal function. So this picture to your right is a cross-section image of a testis. Within the testis are called, are coiled structures called seminiferous tubules. And this is a site of spermatogenesis. Let's take an even closer look at this. So inside this seminiferous tubules, you'll see spermatocytes and Sertoli cells. And those are represented by these blue ovals. Sertoli cells are important because they provide nutrition and support to these maturing spermatocytes. Additionally, you'll also see the interstitial space Lydic cells, and the Lydic cells produce the hormone testosterone. And as we know, testosterone is important in um, development of the gonads in males. However, though, chemotherapy acts on and have direct toxic effects on the Sertoli cells, causing impairments in the spermatogenesis. They also have direct toxic effects on these Lydic cells. And that can lead to low testosterone and hypogonadism, leading to infertility in male patients. So now what, the, what does that look like in female gonadal function? So even before we look at what an ovarian function looks like with chemotherapy present, let's take a look at what ovarian function looks like at normal physiologic conditions. So you have your primordial follicles in your ovaries. And primordial follicles, we maybe have May, we maybe have up to one to two million when we are born. But when we hit puberty, we will see about 400,000 primordial follicles only. And at puberty as well, we'll see folliculogenesis. And that is the process of when these primordial follicles will differentiate and mature and eventually release an ovary or an oocyte, I'm sorry, an oocyte and in the process of ovulation. It is also important to note that during natural uh, physiologic conditions, we will see some atresia with these primordial follicles. And that just means that over time, they just some of these follicles will just die off and fail to thrive. Additionally, these squiggly red lines are my attempt of drawing vascularization in our ovaries. So now let's take a look at what happens when chemotherapy is present. So again, we have our primordial follicles. And we know that with normal physiologic conditions, there, there's already atresia happening. But with chemotherapy present, this rate of atresia is increased. Additionally, there's also an accelerated primordial follicle activation, lowering the ovarian reserve even more. So if these primordial follicles can actually survive and turn into 
primary follicles and secondary follicles and mature, they're, they're not off the hook yet. Chemotherapy can also cause apoptosis and exert their damaging effects um, on the follicles that way. And let's say they mature and survive again. But chemotherapy can still cause the generation of these antral follicles. So they can still, chemotherapy can also still damage these antral follicles. Additionally, chemotherapy does not only affect these primordial follicles, they can also directly affect the tissue, uh, ovarian tissue itself and cause inflammation. And additionally, also cause vascular damage. So to review what we have learned so far, I ask you to please take out your phones or your laptops and go to pollev.com slash MayoRx or text MayoRx to 22333 and, um, and send in your answers that way. So our first question is, which of the following chemotherapeutic agents is most associated with gonadal toxicity in cancer patients? Is it A, methotrexate, B, etoposide, C, cyclophosphamide, and D, rituximab? Perfect. So I am seeing answers coming through. And I agree with the majority of you. C, cyclophosphamide is the correct answer. It's the chemotherapeutic agent that is most associated with gonadal toxicity because it's a non-cell cycle specific agent. Methotrexate and etoposide are both cell cycle specific agents. Although yes, they, may they might have gonadal toxicity, um, they have a lesser risk as compared to non-cell cycle specific agents. And rituximab has different me mechanism of action. And same thing, it is also specific um, to that mechanism of action. So the right answer is cyclophosphamide because of its non-cell cycle specific uh, effects. So now that we've looked at the risk factors and how chemotherapy can affect the, the gonadal function in both males and females, let's take a look at different fertility preservation modalities. Uh, first, let's look at a dose assigned male at birth. What modalities are available for them and what are recommended by the guidelines? We'll take a look at sperm cryopreservation, hormonal gonadoprotection, and testicular cryopreservation. So beginning with your sperm cryopreservation. Sperm cryopreservation has been around since the 1980s. And really this process starts with the patients being screened for any infectious diseases and sexually transmitted diseases. If these screenings come back negative, then we can go ahead and collect semen sample and analyze that and make sure that there's viable specimen that we can then freeze and store. And the length of storage really just depends on the patient and when they want to try to conceive. So when they desire to conceive, we can then thaw that semen sample carefully and use it for intrauterine insemination so the direct um, insemination and use of semen sample um, and um, use in the uterus, uh, in vitro fertilization or intracytoplasmic sperm injection. Intracytoplasmic sperm injection just means that we choose one sperm and we inject it directly into the cytoplasm of the oocyte causing fertilization. So really the question is, the sperm cryopreservation, does it actually work and does it produce viable offsprings? And how often do people actually utilize this method methodology? So Ferrari, Ferrari and colleagues um, set out to ask the same questions. So they did a systematic review of published literature from 2000 to 2015 on the use of sperm cryopreservation. They included about 30 studies 
with 11,000 male cancer patients. So they looked at sperm sample utilization, the outcome of assisted reproductive technology procedures, and the clinical pregnancy rate and or live birth rate of sperm cryopreservation. What they found was that there was a very low rate of utilization of cryopreserved sperm. Only about 8% of the 11,000 patients um, came back for the cryopreserved um, semen sample. The reason is unclear, and that could be unfortunately because of the deaths in cancer patients, or that they merely just decided that they do not want to pursue um, parenthood in the future. Additionally, over a thousand art cycles were performed and they found a clinical pregnancy rate of 23% and a live birth rate of 19%. Of those patients though, who did come back for their cryopreserved semen sample, they found that almost half of those patients um, achieve parenthood. So again, Ferrari and colleagues found underutilization of cryopreserved sperm sample, but they also found that of those patients that want their samples back and utilize art cycles, 50% of them um, achieved parenthood, as I've mentioned. Five additional studies looked into sperm cryopreservation. And as you can see, the number of patients are highly variable, ranging from 29 to 682 patients. The number, the total number of art cycles performed also highly uh, is also highly variable, from 11% to 101%. The rate of pregnancy is low. However, if you looked at the live birth rate, it is encouraging because of those patients who did achieve clinical pregnancy, live birth rate is higher for those patients. Additionally, just like the other study, they also found a lower utilization rate with uh, the semen samples. So about 4.7 to 17.2% of patients came back for their cryopreserved samples. Again, the conclusion is that with these studies, they found successful live births, even though there was low utilization rate of sperm sample. And with this successful live births, this is why the ASCO and the NCCN guidelines recommend sperm cryopreservation in fertility preservation in our male cancer patients. So sperm cryopreservation is our ability to collect sperm samples and store them externally. However, we're not really protecting the spermatogonial stem cells in the testicles themselves. And we're also not protecting testicular damage from chemotherapy, which is why hormonal gonadoprotection was proposed and studied for spermatogenesis protection. So let's take a look at the mechanism, the proposed mechanism of how hormonal gonadoprotection works. And it starts with the hypothalamus. And I mentioned the hypothalamic pituitary gland axis before with cranial radiation. So again, starts with the hypothalamus releasing gonadotropin releasing hormone. And that stimulates the anterior pituitary to release two gonadotropins namely your follicle-stimulating hormone and the luteinizing hormone. And I will be referring to them um, as FSH and LH from now on. FSH and LH are really important for testicular development. So FSH facilitates spermatogenesis and they stimulate the Sertoli cells. They will also stimulate the production of inhibin. LH, uh, LH they facilitate the um, production of testosterone by stimulating the Leydig cells that we talked about previously. However, when there's a high 
uh, concentration of inhibin and testosterone. They provide a negative feedback loop to the hypothalamus and the anterior pituitary gland. This causes a reduction in concentration of the FSH and LH. With this reduction of FSH and LH, there's also a reduction of spermatogenesis. And with that reduction of spermatogenesis, the theory is that there's going to be lower rates of proliferating, um, rapidly proliferating cells if there's not a lot of spermatogenesis going on. And that, again, is important because, as we mentioned, chemotherapy affects those rapidly proliferating cells. So the theory is if we hold those cells from proliferating, then they can be more resistant to the, chemo to the gonadotoxic effects of chemotherapy. And that is a theory behind hormonal gonadoprotection. So these two studies set out to find out, well, does it actually help? So Cruiser and Brenneman included um, testicular cancer patients in their studies. Cruiser and colleagues included um, GnRH agonist hormone treatments with chemotherapy, while Brenneman included GnRH agonist and antiandrogen and radiation therapy. So they looked at recovery time and they assessed the re restoration of sperm counts from baseline. So when they looked at the recovery time of both groups, they found that uh, the recovery time was 24 months after chemo in the GnRH group. However, they also realized the re recovery time for the control group was the same. So there really wasn't no difference found um, with the recovery time between the two groups. Brenneman and colleagues also found the same thing. Recovery time was at 18 months after radiation, and they did not find any difference when it comes to the recovery time between the two groups. Therefore, again, no difference in recovery time between the uh, hormonal gonadoprotection group and the control group. So therefore, the ASCO guidelines and NCCN guidelines also, uh, they do not recommend the use of hormonal gonadoprotection based off of this because there's just no added benefits to the addition of hormonal treatments as of right now per clinical trials that we have. The next modality that we will be talking about is testicular cryopreservation. And testicular cryopreservation is similar in with uh, sperm cryopreservation in a way that we are self-freezing samples. However, instead of uh, freezing um, semen sample, we actually go in and take a tissue biopsy analyze that for viability, and that is what we freeze and store. Again, it's going to depend, storage time will depend on the patients and when they want to conceive. We can then utilize that uh, once they're ready. We can thaw that sample and re-implant it or re-graft it back into the patient. And the hopes is angiogenesis will occur and your natural um, sex hormones will facilitate the maturation of, the, of, of those spermatocytes that we can then extract and utilize for IUI, IVF, or ICSI. So who are good candidates for testicular cryopreservation? And really, those are your pre-pubertal boys. These, this, um, mo this modality is really their only option because they're still unable to produce um, mature sperms through spermatogenesis. Additionally, uh, candidates would be post-pubertal adolescents and adults who are unable to provide a semen sample. And what do we currently know about testicular cryopreservation? So right now, the un there's unknown long-term effects to the testis with this method, and there's also no retrieval of any mature sperm, or there's no reports of any live births using testicular cryopreservation. 
Therefore, again, ASCO and NCCN guidelines still consider this as an experimental study, and they recommend that this should only be performed in clinical trials. So just reviewing what we have what we have discussed so far with the fertility preservation modalities modalities for those assigned male at birth. As I've mentioned, sperm cryopreservation is really the only uh, modality that is recommended by our guidelines because it actually produced successful live births as compared to the other modalities that we talked about. Hormonal gonadoprotection, there really wasn't any added clinical benefit that we've seen so far. And for testicular cryopreservation, again, there's no uh, live birth that has been reported yet. So this is still an experimental study as of right now. So sperm cryopreservation is actually the mainstay modality that our guidelines recommend um, for fertility preservation in male cancer patients. So moving forward into the different modalities that are available for females, we will talk about embryo or oocyte cryopreservation, ovarian transposition or shielding, ovarian tissue cryopreservation, and we have a surprise here. We'll talk about this later on because this is a widely debated topic um, and there's a lot of uh, expert opinions, varying expert opinions on this. So we'll later review current literature on it. So the first uh, female fertility preservation method that we will be talking about is embryo or oocyte cryopreservation. Again, this is similar to sperm cryopreservation because we will also still be uh, freezing and uh, storing these samples. How they differ, though, is the amount of time of when we can actually harvest these oocytes. Uh, because we need to stimulate the ovaries first to be able to harvest uh, mature oocytes. And that can take about one to three weeks of follicle stimulation. And once we're able to harvest the oocyte, we can then freeze them as the oocyte, or we can utilize, um, we can fertilize them with a sperm and, and freeze them as an embryo. Again, once the patient is ready to utilize them, we can use either IVF or ICSI to hopefully uh, produce, uh, produce a viable birth for these patients. As I've mentioned, these, uh, this treatment can take about one to three weeks. Therefore, this method is really, can, this method can only really be utilized in patients who are able to delay cancer treatment. So again, does embryo or oocyte cryopreservation work? And Frazen and colleagues looked at that same question. They did a system, systematic review and meta-analysis of published control studies and analyzed the rate of live birth with embryo and oocyte cryopreservation. They included 34 studies from the years 2004 to 2001, and their primary outcome that, that they looked at was live birth rate. And that really is our end goal for a lot of our patients. So for embryo cryopreservation, the live birth rate was 41%, an oocyte cryopreservation live birth rate was 32%. Again, sperm, uh, I'm sorry, embryo or oocyte cryopreservation produce viable births. And that was demonstrated through this study. And as I've mentioned, this is what is the end goal for a lot of our patients is that are they able to have a baby at the end of this, um, at the end of this cryopreservation process? So the different key considerations that we need to assess and we need to be discussing with our patients are the following. So for embryo cryopreservation and oocyte cryopreservation, post-pubertal females can utilize uh, both methodology. 
However, for em embryo cryopreservation, as a reminder, this is a fertilized egg. So this is usually only considered for patients who have a male partner or patients who are willing to use a sperm donor sample. And of those who do not have a male per partner currently or those who do not want to use a sperm bank, then they can always, they can always store their oocytes. Again, we also have to assess and consider the patient's ethical or religious background because some patients may have ethical or religious concern about the freezing of an embryo. And if they do have those concerns, then they can consider oocyte cryopreservation instead of embryo cryopreservation. So the next method that I will be talking about is ovarian transposition and shielding. And this mainly really refers to radiation therapy. So I will not be focusing a lot of my time on this, but we'll still talk about it because it is also important because a lot of our patients might still undergo radiation. So ovarian transposition, um, what happens is that this ligament right here will be cut and the ovaries will then be moved out of the field of radiation. So the goal is we can so the goal is to move the ovaries out of the field of radiation so that we have a lesser risk of toxicity on the ovaries and less risk for uh, oncologic infertility. However, what's important to note is that this process must be done just right prior to radiation because there is a higher risk for remigration of the ovaries back into where um, back to their original position. One other um, method that we will be talking about is ovarian shielding. And this is a less uh, invasive method because what happens is that this is actually an external cover um, that we can put outside externally uh, to cover the ovaries and the other reproductive organs of, of the female reproductive system. And that's just to make sure that radiation cannot penetrate and cause gonadotoxicity. However, something to note and something that ASCO and NCCN guidelines also suggest is that we need to discuss our, to our patients and we need to be upfront to them. The ovarian transposition and ovarian shielding may not always be successful because of the risk of radiation scatter. So again, this is something that we need to consider before um, we recommend this to our patients. The next uh, method that we will be talking about is ovarian tissue cryopreservation. Again, very similar to testicular cryopreservation in a way that we will also be taking a tissue biopsy, analyzing it for viability, freezing and storing it. And once the patient is ready, we can then thaw it and retransplant it or do in vitro maturation. And we can utilize it for in vitro fertilization in the future. So who are good candidates for ovarian tissue cryopreservation? So pre-pubertal girls, this is again their only option because they haven't yet gone through folliculogenesis and they don't have, they're unable to produce mature oocytes. Other good candidates include premenopausal females who do not have adequate time for oocyte or embryo cryopreservation. Again, because those can take about one to three weeks um, for us to be able to stimulate the follicles and produce an oocyte for cryopreservation. So what do we know about current data for ovarian tissue cryopreservation? So there's unknown long-term effects to the ovaries, and there's also concern for potential reseeding of tumor cells when we transplant this. So if the patient actually has a high risk for um, reseeding of tumor cells, we might not want to consider ovarian tissue cryopreservation. 
However, though, unlike testicular cryopreservation, about 130 live births have been reported with the utilization of ovarian tissue cryopreservation, and which is why the American Society for Reproductive Medicine actually no longer considers this as experimental, and they actually recommend this as a good option for patients, uh, for female, female cancer patients. However, ASCO guidelines and the NCCN guidelines still considers this an experimental study, just like testicular cryopreservation, um, and they recommend that this only be done in clinical trial settings. So again, let's review what we've learned about, us, about the fertility preservation modalities that we can utilize for female cancer patients. Embryo or OSI cryopreservation, uh, has produced viable offsprings for our patients, so therefore they're recommended by the ASCO and NCCN guidelines. Ovarian transposition and shielding uh, with radiation therapy, sometimes uh, not successful, so therefore it's, it's still a gray area, and we need to consider um, talking to our patients about this because of radiation scatter risk. Ovarian tissue cryopreservation, although we have seen 130 live births, the ASCO and NCCN guidelines still consider this experimental, and it's still highly, um, it still costs a lot of money to do cryo tissue cryopreservation. So before we move on to the next modality that we will be uh, talking about, let's take a look at this patient case first and review what we have learned so far. So KP is a 20-year-old male who was recently diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. He will be treated with a cyclophosphamide-containing regimen, and he states that he's interested in having children uh, of his own in the future. So based on current evidence, what fertility preservation modality would you recommend for KP? Is it A, hormonal gonadoprotection, B, sperm cryopreservation, C, testicular tissue cryopreservation, or D, testicular shielding? And I would say that I agree with the majority of you. Sperm cryopreservation, as we mentioned, is really the only fertility modality in male patients that are recommended by the guidelines. And it's one that we've seen actual live births. With hormonal gonadoprotection, as you remember, there really wasn't any additional benefit to its addition because the recovery time of those patients who, who were added who had gonadotropin releasing agonist, and those who did not um, had similar recovery time for their recovery of their sperm counts. Testicular tissue cryopreservation, again, is still an experimental study. And so far we have not seen any live births through this modality. And testicular shielding is really mostly for radiation and not for systemic chemotherapy like cyclophosphamide. So B is a um, B sperm cryopreservation is a correct answer. Thanks for your participation. Moving forward, as I promised, we will now be talking about a widely debated um, and widely debated modality currently, because there's just a lot of differing opinions about it. Even experts have differing opinions, um, and there are so many um, clinical trials are also looking at this currently. And I'm mainly referring to ovarian suppression. So what is a proposed mechanism for ovarian suppress suppression using gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists? So there are two um, sides to this. The proposed theory is that 
gonadotropin releasing hormone agonists have an indirect effect and a direct effect on the ovarian suppression. First, we will be focusing on the indirect effect of gonadotropin releasing hormone agonists. And you're probably familiar with this. Again, this is the HPG axis or the hypothalamic pituitary gland axis. So you'll see the hypothalamus releasing gonadotropin releasing hormone and simulating the pituitary to release follicle simulating hormone. And that simulates the ovary to, um, to undergo folliculogenesis and produce an oocyte. However, in the presence of gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists, we will see that this pathway is actually inhibited, and this causes ovarian suppression. So there's also causes decreased growth and secretion uh, of growth factor, decreased follicular requirement, and decreased vascularization. And really, the goal is if we have, if we are suppressing over ovarian function. We can also suppress, again, those highly proliferating cells that can be affected by chemotherapy. So very similar theory to the hormonal gonadoprotection that we talked about in males. And the direct effect includes the gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists uh, actively binding to this receptor and causing a decrease in apoptosis. Um, and with that decrease in apoptosis, increase in germ cells um, and increase in your ovarian reserve. So some of some examples um, of gonadotropin releasing hormone agonists includes gosorelin, triptorelin, and luprolide. And many of these we already use uh, for female cancer patients who have um, high menstrual blood flow um, and of those patients who also have a lower platelet, platelet count. So we actually use this for endometrial th thinning and to help them have a lesser uh, menstrual blood flow to help um, increase that platelet count. So the big debate really is that um, a lot of experts actually believe that there is no known biolog biologic mechanism where gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists can prevent pre premature ovarian failure because they think that uh, these primordial follicles do not actually have receptors for gonadotropin-releasing hormone and follicle-simulating hormone. Therefore, they, um, they are activated independently independently um, from gonadotropin-releasing hormone activation. However, on the other side of that coin, we are also seeing clinical trials and even a meta-analysis that, um, that shows promising results. Um, and they say that GnRHA can help reduce risk of chemo-induced premature ovarian failure. And let's take a look at those clinical trials and meta-analysis even further and explore the literature behind this. So the POEMS trial was a phase three unblinded RCT that was conducted from 2004 to 2011. And they looked at chemotherapy alone for, and put patients um, on gosorelin, the other side, um, the other group on chemotherapy and gosorelin. This is our GnRHA agonist. So they included 257 premenopausal women of the age 18 to 49 years with a diagnosis of HR-negative breast cancer. And these patients were planned to receive cyclophosphamide-containing regimen. The primary outcome that they looked at was a rate of ovarian failure, which they uh, defined as amenorrhea or absence of menses and an FSH level um, in postmenopausal range. They also looked at secondary outcomes like rate of pregnancy and adverse drug effects. What they found was that the rate of ovarian failure at two years was lower in the gosorelin group 
And that was actually a statistically significant finding with a p-value of 0 0.04. Additionally, the rate of pregnancy in the gosorelin group is also higher than those patients in the chemo alone group, again with a p-value of 0 0.03. <clears throat> and more importantly, grade three or higher adverse drug effects, including thrombosis, uh, they did not find significant or they did not find difference in the two groups with a p-value of 0.89. So the POEM trial, again, found lower rate of ovarian failure in patients who received gosorelin with chemotherapy. However, these are some of the weaknesses that I've found and included. So the POEM trial had an incomplete enrollment and missing data, and that, again, can affect our results. They also did not um, assess interest in future fertility, um, even before the patients were included in the study. And that can affect the number of patients that we can analyze for pregnancy rates. And the biomarkers that they utilize um, were, FS were FSH, um, and that sometimes can be hard to monitor. Additionally, um, this study was originally powered for 416 patients. And as I have mentioned, they only included and analyzed 257%. So they did not reach power. Again, um, this was an open label design. And with this design, this can really skew the patient's um, this can skew the patient's view of when they want to have kids or their um, conception of their fertility health because and then this can affect um, our number of uh, patients that we can analyze for clinical pregnancy rate and live birth rate. Um, I've also added that this uh, trial ex excluded HR positive breast cancer patients. So the PROMISE SKIM 6 trial also looked at similar thing. However, they included patients, breast cancer patients with HR positive or HR negative um, diagnosis. This was a multi-center, randomized, again, open label, phase three superiority trial that was conducted in Italy from 2003 to 2008. Instead of gosorelin, they actually used tryptorelin um, in this occasion. They included premenopausal women from 18 to 45 years of age at the time of diagnosis. And the primary outcome that they looked at was the rate of premature ovarian insufficiency and post-hoc endpoints that they also looked at was disease-free survival and overall survival and pregnancies. And over ovarian insufficiency was defined as amenorrhea and postmenopausal FSH and estradiol levels one year after chemotherapy. So the PROMIS skim 6 trial actually found that the rate of ovarian insufficiency at 12 months was lower in the tryptorelin group. And this is similar to what we found in the POEMS trial. Again, the p-value was less than 0 0.001. And there were nine pregnancies in the tryptorelin group and four in the chemo alone group. As for the um, breast cancer type of the patients, they did not find that there was any increased risk uh, between HR positive or HR uh, negative breast cancer patients with the utilization of tryptorelin in this group. So again, patients receiving chemo with tryptorelin had a lower rate of ovarian insufficiency at 12 months. And that is what PROMISE SKIM 6 trial has found. And future interest in fertility was again not assessed in the beginning. And I thought that that was one of the weaknesses because it can really affect our, the number of uh, patients that we can assess for pregnancy. They also utilize surrogate markers of ovarian function like menstrual activity, um, follicular stimulating hormone and estradiol levels. And this was an open label design. So now moving forward into the meta-analysis that looked at 
five clinical trials regarding the use of ovarian suppression. This too may be familiar. Uh, the PROMISE Skim 6 and the POEMS trial were included in this. And as we take a look at, again, the number of patients um, was highly variable from 48 to 281 patients were included. Additionally, the primary endpoint, which makes it hard for us to compare these trials um, side by side, is because the primary endpoint definitions were very different. Some, some clinical trials looked at FSH and estradiol, some only looked at FSH, uh, and also the timeline also varies. So that is one of the weaknesses of this meta-analysis is that there's just um, a harder, it's harder for us to compare them side by side because of the differences in primary endpoints that they defined. So what did this meta-analysis of Lambertini and colleague found um, in terms of premature ovarian insufficiency events? So three out of the five trials actually found um, not significant findings, even though two of them found that maybe GnRH um, is favored uh, for premature ovarian insufficiency events. The PROMISE SKIM6 and the OPTION trial found clinical significance, and they also found that there was a less risk for um, ovarian insufficiency in those patients that were getting GnRHA. And their overall outcome was that uh, there was, GnRHA was favored, and this was a clinical, um, this was a statistical uh, finding uh, for the meta-analysis that Lambertini and colleague found. So moving on to our next, to our last assessment question, we have a patient case here, and let's try to utilize the literature that we have just discussed. JM is a 38-year-old female who was recently diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer. She underwent, recently underwent a mastectomy and will be started on an adjuvant chemotherapy regimen. She currently does not have any children, but expresses interest in having some in the future. Based on uh, the current evidence and what we've just recently discussed, would you recommend starting a gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist on this patient? either tryptorelin or gosorelin. And this is exactly the answer that I was expecting. Um, again, as I mentioned, all these clinical trials had different protocols and different definitions of their primary endpoints. So it was very hard to compare them. So it is only appropriate for you guys to say um, that maybe um, we can utilize it. There's really not a definite answer yet. And even the ASCO and NCCN guidelines still do not have a recommendation um, for gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists because they want more clinical data on this. However, as for my personal opinion, and this is my personal opinion, um, as we go back, JM has an aggressive form of breast cancer. Therefore, embryo or oocyte cryopreservation is probably something that we cannot use for her because she just cannot, she doesn't have the time to wait for follicle stimulation. And again, with when we compared adverse drug effects with gosorelin and uh, the chemo alone group, there was no uh, difference in those, in those groups. Therefore, I'm confident. I'm not too worried about adverse drug effects if we add it on JM's um, chemotherapy regimen. Additionally, there was also um, not a significant risk on either HR positive or HR negative 
So the HR status of the patient doesn't really matter when it comes to um, the addition of GNRH agonists. So therefore, I'm, that is also something that I have factored in while um, assessing JM. So my personal answer would be, sure, we can definitely trial GNRH agonists for JM, especially considering that we don't have any other modalities that we can use for her. So when can we utilize GNRHA for ovarian suppression? And I've summarized here again, just like JM, for those cancer patients who cannot delay chemotherapy or those cancer patients who would like to bolster gonadal protection. Again, there's no increased risk for adverse drug effects, so we're not causing any harm, any more harm to these patients. And those cancer patients who cannot afford cryopreservation, um, tissue cryopreservation alone can cost up to $1,000 to $5,000. And that's just for uh, analysis and collection of specimen. However, with tissue cryopreservation and storage, that could be an additional $1,000 for each year that they want to store their samples. So these following patients, subset of patients, is when I will consider uh, the utilization of GNRHA for ovarian suppression. And let's take a look at some of the guidelines um, and what they've said. So I've, as, as I've mentioned, ASCO and NCCN um, adolescent and young adult guidelines currently do not recommend it because they need more data um, in regards to gonadotropin use. However, the NCCN breast cancer guideline actually does have a strong recommendation for this. And we've seen that with breast cancer patients, um, you know, a lot of the clinical trials focus on breast cancer patients. And I'm not surprised that they recommend um, the use of gonadotropin releasing hormone agonists. But you also see a lot of international guidelines have strong recommendation for this. So this is a this is very interesting to me um, that even these big U.S. and international guidelines are kind of split, and they're still debating on when we can actually utilize um, ovarian suppression for female cancer patients. And this is just a summary slide of what we've discussed so far. So again, for male at birth, sperm cryopreservation is really the only um, modality that is recommended per the guidelines. Hormonal gonadoprotection is not, and testicular cryopreservation is still considered an experimental study. Uh, for those assigned female at birth, embryo or oocyte cryopreservation is the only thing that's recommended as of right now. Ovarian transposition and shielding can vary. Um, the results can vary. Ovarian tissue cryopreservation is still an experimental, experiment, experimental study. And ovarian suppression is still um, under research and still needs more clinical data for us to be able to strongly recommend this here in the United States. And with that, um, I would just like to summarize what we've learned. So like I've mentioned, non-cell cycle specific agents are those chemotherapeutic agents that, we, that pose a high risk for gonadotoxicity. An example of that is cyclophosphamide. Um, sperm and embryo or oocyte cryopreservation are the gold standard for fertility preservation in both ma uh, in males and females, respectively. And the use of gonadotropin releasing agonists in ovarian su um, suppression is still currently under investigation and more robust studies are still needed. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.